okay. Um, we just, if, especially if you're visiting, we just wrapped up an identity series a few weeks back. Um, it, just to remind some of you, I think most of you have this, but if you don't, we still have postcards back there as a, a reminder. If you need an extra one or want to give one to a friend, grab one of those. Um, K-State this week announced their new basketball coach. Um, Tong is his last name. I don't remember his first name. What's his first name? Anybody? Yeah, obviously not. The K-State fans don't care <laughs> as much as KU fans care about our thing. But he, somebody said, he said a really profound thing this week. He said, basketball and coaching is just what I do. It's not who I am. Who I am is established in my relationship with Jesus Christ. Isn't that powerful? That's a statement of somebody who is living their identity, and I am whose I am. And they're living as a child of God. So I just thought that was really cool. So kudos to him. Uh, uh, make K-State do well under his leadership. Um, so in that identity series, there was something I realized a few weeks in or halfway, I'm not sure, but as we did that, um, I, th I was thinking, I need to be really clear on something, that when we were talking about our identity in Jesus, that I am a new creation, I'm his beloved child and all of that, that I was speaking to people who have come into a relationship with the Father through Jesus Christ, through his death, burial, and resurrection. Those are the people I was talking about that can have that kind of identity. Um, and that's the only way to get that, that if you have not come to the place of having accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the reality is, is what I was saying is, is not, it doesn't apply to you, okay? No judgment in that, not trying to be unkind, but if you haven't come to that saving relationship and he's not in you and made you a new creation, what I was saying doesn't apply. And I know there are people who are here in this very room, some people I know, um, very intimately, who are on a journey to exploring Jesus, so that's not meant as any condemnation, but just I just want to say that the reality is you have to first come into relationship with him before this identity can be true. And so what I wanted to do this morning is I really want to talk about and have clarity of what does it mean to come to know God as my Father through Jesus Christ. And I want this morning to really stand on the gospel and be clear on the gospel because there's nothing more important than the good news of Jesus and the gospel, right? If we're not on that foundation, nothing else matters. And so we're going to look at a really, really important text this morning. And it's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And we had it handed out to you ahead of time. Um, and I, you can follow along. The reason I did this is I'm normally preaching out of the NIV. I really like how the NLT translates this. Um, the New Living Translation is a really good translation. In fact, a few years ago, I sat down with all of our Wycliffe Bible translators and I asked them, what you know about Bible translation, in your opinion, what is the best English translation that conveys the meaning and the voice of the, new, of the Greek and the Hebrew, and they said the New Living Translation. It, I prefer to preach from the NIV, but this week I'm going to do the NLT. If there's anybody that doesn't have one of these, I think the guys were really great. Anybody that wants one that doesn't have one, because this is the text we're going to use, if you can raise a hand, but I think you guys nailed it. Got, I see at least one over here. Um, raise your hand up if you didn't. You might want to do some marking on this because there's some really powerful things in this text. And I would like you to stand with me, and I'd like to read this together off the sheet. So if you would stand, let's read Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> I blow up my mic. All right, ready? Let's go. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. 
He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. And this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Um, This text really breaks down into two major parts, verses 1 to 3 and 4 to 10. And that's why I've divided it on the page that way. Um, Part 1 is verses 1 to 3. It's the once you section, the first two words of that section, the once you section. And the focus of this section, the first three verses, is our condition. In fact, the words, um, the words you and your or us and our occur seven times in this paragraph, seven times. And again, it's talking about our condition. So let's, what it, let's see what the text says about our condition. And it's in verse one at the very beginning. Once you were dead. Wow. Talk about kind of in your face. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. If you look down to verse 5, you'll see it stated there again, kind of in the middle of that second line. We were dead because of our sins. So the Bible describes our condition before encountering Jesus is we were what? Dead. We were dead. Dead specifically in our sins. And in that first paragraph, Paul's going to say a couple of really important details to really describe what this death looks like in our sin. In verse 1, he says that we're dead because of our disobedience and our many sins. Those two words are really significant. The word in Greek, um, I won't give it to you, but for disobedience, it just simply refers to the bad things we should not do that we do. The bad things we should not do that we do. Um, Whether it's in our word, in our thought, in our deed, in our attitudes, in our actions, the bad things we should not do that we do. But I find the second word in Greek especially compelling and interesting because that word means to fall short or to miss a mark, and that is referring to the opposite, and what that's referring to is the good things we should do that we do not do, the good things we should do that we do not do, and I think if you talk to most people, this would have been me before I knew Jesus, about what sin is, we tend to define sin primarily or only as the bad things I do that I should not do, but the scripture also says that sin includes the good things I should do that I do not do, and we don't want to think about that. Because there's a lot of good things we know we should do that we don't do, right? And that one's actually pretty scary. 
In James 4.15, it says this, if anyone knows the good they ought to do and they do not do it, it is sin for them. It is sin for them. And so both of these words are really important in us understanding when it says that we're dead because of our sin. We're dead not only because of the wrong things that we do, we're dead because of the good things we should do that we don't do. But the second thing I want to point out that to me stands out, if you will look, the word live occurs twice in here. It can, it, it's in the beginning of verse 2, and it's in the beginning of verse 3. And it tells us two things about this sinful condition. Verse 2 says, you used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil. It says of the devil that he is the commander of the powers in the unseen world, and he's the spirit at work on the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. I'm telling you that we lived obeying the devil. Are those not really strong words? Are those not strong words? That, um, that we in our fallen condition, that we actually obey Satan and we refuse to obey God. That that's how God sees our sin. And then verse 3 adds another kind of layer to it. That all of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful, sinful nature. In the NIV, it says, we gratify the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. So according to the scripture, when it talks about sin, it's not only the bad that we do that we shouldn't and the good we don't do that we should, but it also talks about in the sense that we, all of us, our condition as being sinful is that I live my life. This is how I live. I live my life actually obeying Satan, and I live my life gratifying these sinful inclinations and desires, the cravings that came out of my sinful nature, just out of who I was in my heart. So obeying Satan, following the desires and inclinations of the sinful nature. And we don't talk about this much, um, but the Bible is really clear that when I'm living in my sin before Jesus, that I am living in slavery, that I'm actually living, living in bondage. Galatians, in Galatians 4.3, you can look it up later, Paul talks about before knowing Jesus, we are actually slaves to Satan and the unseen spiritual forces of the world, that I'm actually a slave to him. And I actually do a lot of what he wants me to do. And Jesus, in John chapter 8, verse 36, says that we are slaves to our sin that I'm enslaved to it, that I don't have a choice, that most of what I do and most of what I do not do is because of my enslavement to sin. So really powerful concepts. And then look at um, verse 3, the first word, because this condition of us, how it describes our sin and being dead, it applies to that first word. How many of us does this apply to before Jesus? All, all of us, all of us. No exceptions in all of humanity, all of us. That's why in Isaiah 53, 6, Isaiah writes there that we all like sheep have wandered away from God. We have all gone our own way. And in Romans 3, 23, it says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is clear all through scripture that all have sinned. And the result is in that last sentence of verse 3. Last sentence of verse 3. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger just like everyone else. So because of our sin against him, we are all deserving of judgment. And we will all one day stand before him and we will give an account to him for not only all the bad things that we have done that we shouldn't have done in, again, attitude and thought and behavior, actions, but we will also answer to him for all the good things we should have done that we did not do. So we're all going to stand before him. So this whole section, number one, because I really want to get to section two. Number one is important, but that first part it's the once you, and that describes our condition before we encounter Jesus. 
and our condition is we're dead in our sins. Dead on our sins. It's pretty clear, is it not? The text is pretty clear on that. So part two is verses four to ten. It's the but God section, which is the first two words. So the, the once you, but now we're in the but God section. And the focus here is on God and his provision. And just like you and your and us and we occurred seven times in that first paragraph, the words God or he and his occurs 14 times in this paragraph. I mean, God is really elevated in this paragraph. I really love this paragraph. And his provision, as we're going to see, is life. New life in Jesus. So look at verse 4. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, in spite of that reality of being dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. Uh, you guys kind of got me addicted to amens last week. Can we hear an amen to that? That he gave us life? He gave us life in Jesus Christ. And if you think about that, that really totally makes sense. It's very logical. Because if the human problem is being spiritually dead, then if there's going to be an answer or a solution to that problem, that solution has to be what? Life. If the problem's death, then the answer is life, new life. And that's why verse 10 says, um, in those words, that we are created anew in Christ Jesus, because what we need is new life. It's why Jesus, in John chapter 3, said to Nicodemus when he came to him, one of the leading religious leaders, unless you are born again, unless you get new life, you will not see the kingdom of God. This is consistent all through the scripture. And then verse 6 adds, defining this new life, it says, for he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we're united with Christ. Now, I don't, sometimes words can be ambiguous to me. Or I'm like, okay, new life. Give me something a little more concrete. And Paul actually does that. He gives us another word or another concept to help define what he's talking about, a new life that I find very helpful. And it's the word saved and salvation which occurs three times in this paragraph. So look at the end of verse 5. You have been saved. Or look at the beginning of verse 8. God saved you. Or the first word of verse 9, salvation. I'm going to tell you, this is a really important word in the Bible. And I also want to say this, being saved, I love that word because it implies helplessness, utter helplessness. If you are at a lake on the shore and there's somebody out in the middle of the water and you hear them start to yell, save me, save me, what are you immediately thinking about that person? That what? Yeah, I heard a lot of murmurs, so it, didn't, it was all, I'm old in my hearing. It, the, <laughs> so here's what I think you probably said, that um, they need help and they are unable to help themselves. If you're crying, save me, save me, it means I cannot help myself, that they need rescue. And what does the Bible say we need to be rescued from or saved from? Yeah, I think we know the answer. But it's that section 1 to 3. It's our sin. That's why upon announcing Mary's miraculous pregnancy to Joseph, the angel said this, you're to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Save them from their sins. And the name Jesus, I've said this many times, means God to the rescue. So to get this new life means to be saved. They're, they're, they're the same kind of concept. So I want you to look at verse 8 and 9 now, because this to me is almost the most important part of the text. I mean, this is all really important. But in verses 8 and 9, Paul is going to draw a really important contrast, contrast, and we cannot miss this. Okay. So if you want to focus, fall asleep later in this, 
This is the time to focus. I don't want you to miss this contrast. Look at the end of verse 8. He's going to give the first sight. There it says that this new life from this new life is from God, and the salvation by God is the end of verse eight. It is a what a what? It is a gift from God. It's a gift. And then verse nine offers the contrast to that. And this is again really important. So hear it. Salvation is not. It is not. It is not a reward for the good things we have done. It's not a reward for the good things we have done. Look at the middle of verse 8. Right, kind of almost right below the 8 number. Here's what it says. You can't take credit for this. You can't take credit for this. Why? Because of the first words of verse 8. God saved you by his grace. And then look at the end of verse 6. The end of verse 6. Um, I thought it was, it, maybe it's the end of verse 5. It's, yeah, it's the end of verse 5. It's only by God's grace that you have been saved. It's only by his grace. That word grace is important and occurs three times in this text. Now, here's why it's important that this new life, this salvation is a gift. It is nothing that I can do to gain it or to earn it. Here's why that's important. Because most people think that what determines whether or not you spend eternity in heaven with God, what determines to most people that you spend eternity with God is whether your good outweighs your bad. This is how most people think. This is like human nature. In our deathness, we tend to think salvation is something I can earn or being with God is something that I can earn. And I think people think that when I die, if the balance of my, if my good weighs heavier than my bad, then I'm in. And I want, you to t- I want to tell you this morning, the Bible does not teach that idea, though most people think that. We could go interview people in the street, and this is what most people think. This is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that this new life from God, that this salvation from God, it is a gift from God. It is a gift, and you can do nothing, absolutely nothing to earn it. Nothing to earn it. How much can you do to earn it? Can I hear a nothing? Like, okay, how much can I do to earn new life or to, get, to gain new life or to earn salvation? Nothing, absolutely nothing. Why, Paul? Look at verse 9. He says, salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. So none of us can boast about it. Do you realize that if our salvation, our getting eternally with God, was about what I do, do you know what eternity would be like? Here's what eternity would be like. It would be like me, I'd come to Tyson. Hey, Tyson, what did you do to get here? And Tyson would be like, man, I'm telling you, I, I led three people to the Lord, and I gave $20,000 to the church over my lifetime. I helped 20 ladies across the street. I did a lot of good stuff. That's why I'm here. And then I'd be, well, Tyson, that's pretty awesome, but I got to tell you, uh, you know, I led 25 people to the Lord, brother, and, and I gave 30000 to the church over my lifetime, and I helped like 50 ladies across the street. I mean, <laughs> right? How much better I am than you. I mean, can you imagine God's home being filled with people who what they talk about is what they did to get there? Can you imagine what that would be like? A place full of pride and comparison, which is the total opposite of God and what he is all about. Remember, this section, 
this 4 to 10, it is all about God. He's the one who gets the credit. He's the one that gets the fame. That's why he's mentioned so much, that this new life and this salvation, it is all his doing. It's all his doing. And according to this text, our salvation from sin, it's all because of, look at verse 4, it's all because of his rich mercy. And in verse 4, his great love. And in verse 7, it's all because of the wealth of his grace and kindness. So when we're finally and eternally brought to to God's presence, we who are there through the death of Jesus Christ, through the death of his son, when we're talking, we're going to be talking about him. So I'll be like, Sarah, what did you do to get here? And Sarah's going to say, absolutely nothing. It was all him. It was all his love. It was his grace. It was his kindness. It was his mercy. It was all him. And she'll say, how about you, Garen? How did you get here? And I'll say, I, I brought nothing to the table. Zip, zilt, nada. It's all him. It's, he's the one that's famous. He's the one that gets the spotlight. It's all about him. The focus is on him. And that's why verse 10 wraps up by saying this. We are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ. We're God's masterpiece. He has created us anew. Look at verse 7. There's just so much when I was looking at this that really grabbed my attention. Almost to the end. It's kind of on the right side of the page, but almost right above the 8. There's something really significant there. It says this. It says, all of what he's done for us. All of what he's done for us. That word done is really significant. Sorry, I should have had the text all the time. That's okay. You got the page. That That word done is really significant. Someone has rightly said Christianity is not about what we do to gain eternal life. It's about what he has done. It's about what he has done. The gospel is all about what he has done for us. We're saved by what he has done, not by what I do. It's all his grace. It's all his doing. I bring nothing to the table of my salvation, my new life, nothing. And I contribute nothing to it, nothing. That's why the sign up here says that my salvation is in Christ alone. And we're going to ask the question, do you believe that Jesus alone has done everything necessary to save you? And they'll say yes, because it's in him alone. So that's part two. That's part two. The but God. The details of his provision, of how he provides new life in Jesus. So part one was that once you, the description of our condition before encountering Jesus as dead in our sin. Part two, the but God, his provision of new life and of salvation for us through Jesus Christ. So if I were to summarize this text, I would do it with two statements related to the two paragraphs. And here's here's how I would summarize it. That the first paragraph, verses 1 to 3, teaches me that I need, oh, that's the summary, sorry, that I need to be saved from my sin. But the second paragraph tells me something maybe more important for a lot of us to hear. It teaches me, I need to be saved from my goodness. I need to be saved from my goodness. And I think that second one is so important because there are some here this morning who have been or are trusting in their goodness to get them into a relationship with God and get them to heaven. That's the thing they're trusting in, to save them. And I've said this before, but the Bible is really clear that good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people go to heaven, and that only comes through Jesus Christ and what he has done. 
that the people who get to be with God are forgiven people. People who've been saved not only from their sin, but they've been saved from their goodness. And please hear me on that, because I think there are so many people who are going to miss a relationship with God because the thing they trust is in their goodness. And our goodness is not what gets us to Him. I want you to know the Bible and Jesus are not a self-improvement plan. It is not a self-improvement plan. The gospel and Christianity, it is not about going from good to bad or good to gooder, okay? It's not about a plan to just make a better version of me. That's not what it's about. What the Bible is about, and I want this to be so crystal clear, the Bible is about going from what? Death to life. From death to life. Not bad to good, not good to better. From death to life. Can you say that with me? From death to life. Thank you. We just saw Paul say that, and I hope everybody leaves here crystal clear on that. Crystal clear. And if you don't want to believe Paul, how about Jesus? Who in John 5.24 said this. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned because he has crossed over from death to life, from death to life. So here's, I want you to know, until a person comes to the point of confessing this reality that I am dead in my sin, dead, I mean, dead is dead. I grew up in Kansas, I mean, in Hayes. A lot of Volga Germans there, and I, I don't know if this came from the Volga German community back in, in Europe. They'd always say all the time, I'm deader than a doornail, deader than a doornail. For a long time, I didn't get that. I still don't know I didn't get that. I guess doornails are pretty dead, but I mean, dead is dead. Until a person is willing to confess, I am dead in my sin, I'm helpless, there's nothing I can do. Until they're willing to confess that, and to confess, I cannot save myself, only he can save me. They will not seek his provision of salvation, new life through Jesus. They won't seek it. They won't seek it. And sadly, won't be saved. Sadly. So, for those of you who have been here through our identity series, we've talked about this the last several weeks. If you've not come to that point of having new life through Jesus, and I'm going to talk in a minute about how you do that, then this doesn't apply to you yet. But if you do come, and that's okay, because I was on a journey that took me a while. That if you want to have this identity, it means that I have to, to come to that saving relationship first. This text leaves me with two questions. Question number one is this. So where does goodness come in then? If being good isn't a part of salvation, then does that mean that I can just believe? I get a free ticket. I believe and I get a free ticket to heaven and I can just do whatever I want the rest of my life. Um, I've heard that many times. I want to tell you, by all means, no. The answer to that question is in verse 10. To verse 10. I have yet to read the whole verse, but I want to now. It says, we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that, I'm adding the that, so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. 
So I want you to know, according to the Bible, the goodness comes after salvation, not before. It comes after, not before. Being good doesn't lead me to a relationship with God. Being good flows out of a relationship with God, and that's a really, really big difference. Because he comes into my life, he makes me new, and his spirit begins to change me and to make me like him. Really big difference. That's why Philippians 2.13 says this. It is God who is at work in you, giving you the desire and the ability to do his will. He gives me, when he comes into me, he gives me that desire and the ability to do his will. So goodness is part of the equation. It just comes after the new life, not before. And then question two. If I want this new life in Jesus, if I want this salvation from my sin, how do I get it? How do I receive it? And the answer is in verse eight. Paul is so great. He included everything in this text we need. In verse eight. And there he says this. God saved you by his grace. Can you say the next three words with me? When you believed. When you believed. And this message is consistent all through the New Testament. In Acts 16.31, a man comes to Paul and says, How can I be saved? And Paul says, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Acts 16.31. A few things about that word believe. Um, In English, it's the Greek word pistio. It's a very rich word in the Greek, and it's so rich, it has to be translated with multiple different English words in the New Testament, in our Bible. The three most common are believe, faith, and trust. Believe, faith, and trust. I especially like the word trust because it conveys more than just believing a set of facts. Trust is relational and talks about that I'm trusting fully and giving myself to a person. It conveys that idea of relationship and of trust. That's why in Acts 16.31, Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus. I'm putting my trust in a person. I'm putting my trust in him, in who he is and in what he has done for me on the cross. Does that make sense? Putting my trust in a person. So in answer to our question, am I, um, I'm saved by God and I'm given new life when I put my full trust in him, in who he claims to be as the creator who became human and in what he did, which is he died on the cross to pay for my sin, to take that penalty for me. Let me show you one more text related to this. John chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. It says, He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, that is, those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. I love these verses because they tie together two concepts, the concept of believing in him and the concept of receiving him. Some translations use the word welcome instead of receive. Um, in our small group, we just talked about this last week. We don't use this much in English anymore, but I know you still are aware of it, that if somebody comes to your house and knocks on the door, and if you open the door, if you welcome them in, you are, you are what? You're receiving them. So to receive is to welcome in. That's why some translations translate it as welcome. So here's what I want you to know. To anyone who receives Christ, his free gift of salvation through his death, burial, and resurrection, to anybody who welcomes him into their life as their Savior and as their Lord by putting their full trust in who he is and in what he's done on the cross, to anyone who will do that, he will give them the right to become the children of God. In other words, they will be born again in the words of Jesus or they will receive new life and be saved in the words of Paul. If you've never done that, it would look something like this. It would be a calling out to him. Jesus, I confess that I'm dead in my sin. 
I acknowledge I can do nothing to save myself. I believe that out of your love and grace, you came to earth to die on the cross to rescue me from sin and death in order to restore me to the Father. I choose now to turn from my sins, my self-centeredness, every part of my life that does not please you, and I choose you. I give myself to you. I receive your forgiveness. I ask you to take your rightful place in my life as my Savior and Lord. I welcome you into my life. Come reign in my heart. Fill me with your love and your life. Help me to become a person who is truly loving, a person like you. Restore me, Jesus. Live in me. Love through me. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. That's just a, somebody put those words together with my adaptations. But there are some people today here, I know, who have been and continue to trust in their goodness to save them. To trust in their goodness to save them. And I want you to know, Scripture is clear. We need to see our condition as dead in our sin, to repent of that, and to believe and put our trust in Jesus Christ. And I don't know, maybe even this morning as I did that, maybe there was somebody in here who's like, I need that, and I want him. And I know that I'm dead in my sin, and I need to be saved not only from my sin, but from my goodness. And who prayed that? If that's the case, you know, come up and let me know that or grab me. Or if you're like to the point of your life, you're, you're almost ready for this and you want to talk some more, I would love to have that conversation. All right, in just a little bit, we're going to hear testimonies of people who've accepted the gospel. And if you listen really closely, you're going to hear the three components of Ephesians 1, 2, 1 to 10 in it. Um, you're going to hear about their life before accepting Jesus. You're going to hear about them coming to the point of welcoming him by believing in him. And you're going to hear about their new life after accepting Christ. So this text actually has all three components. Uh, pretty cool. So once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us with, from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples, the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed. You cannot take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us as new in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. And that's the word of the Lord. That's the word of the Lord. We're about ready to do the baptism. Um, as we do this, I just want to make something really crystal clear, if you don't mind, uh, is this, that in the Bible, our God is a covenant-making God, and anytime God makes a covenant, he always has an outward sign of that covenant. Just like today, when people make agreements, uh, business deals, they do the handshake. The handshake is like the outward sign. And in the New Testament, the Bible says the baptism is the sign of the new covenant. 
And all a sign is, it is a visible token of a covenant entered into. Okay? When I married Pat, we put on, we exchanged rings as a visible token of the covenant. This did not make me married, okay? This didn't make me married. It was the vows that we made that made us married. This simply shows people that I am married, okay? Baptism is a sign like that. Nobody is becoming a Christian by getting this water and getting put underneath. Nobody, all right? They've already made that commitment. They've already received new life by welcoming Jesus into their life and trusting in him. This is simply an outward sign of somebody showing people the reality that's already happened. So please don't leave here thinking that a person becomes a Christian in this, okay? Please don't do that. They've, it's by receiving him. So Jesus, here's the gospel. He died for my sin. He was buried for my sin, and he was risen to new life. Do you see the picture of what we're going to do in baptism? Because a sign frequently is a picture. And he, he did this to offer me forgiveness of my sins and a new, to give me new life with him. And in receiving him, I die to my old self, I am buried, and I rise to new life. That's what Paul just talked about. And in receiving him, I'm cleansed of my sins, and I rise to new life in him. That happens when I receive him, not in this tank. The old me dies, and there's the new me that's in Jesus. And so this is simply a picture of the reality that's already happened, okay? The reality's already happened. So just want to make that clear. Are you guys ready for baptism? and praise him today because he's done it all for us, right? There's nothing that we can do for our own salvation. So we're going to sing nothing but the blood. What can wash Yeah. 
news to everything God's people say. I mean, amen to all that, right? Thank goodness for his grace. Can we pray? Father, thank you for the new life we saw represented as a sign in this water of people who've come to know you and accept you and who have gone from death to life. Thank you that you came and lived the life that I should have lived and don't live and that you died the death that I should have died so that you can give me this free gift of salvation in your name. And we're just so grateful. So we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, 12, a lot of people need to hear that good news, so you are sent.